Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We're in Parshat Vayelech this morning. We are in uh, one of the last Parshiot before we end Deuteronomy and begin Genesis again. Some of these parshiot are short, they're small, so uh, the triennial division doesn't really matter. We read the, the whole parsha. And um, this is one of those parshiot, Vayelech. Sometimes we read it with uh, parshat Nitzavim. So often you'll hear it's called Nitzavim Vayelech. Why don't we read it with Nitzavim this week? Exactly. <laughs> This is a leap year. It's the Jewish leap year where a second Adar is added to the calendar. Adar 2. So when we add a whole month to the calendar, you have how many Shabbatot in a month? Four. So you need four Parshiot that you can read on those four Shabbatot. So four Parshiot are doubled. When, you're, when it's not a leap year, you, just, you double those Parshiot up. And then when there's a leap year, you break them apart. So Nitzavim Vayelech is normally read together, but in a leap year, they each get their own Shabbat. It's like saving dessert, so everybody gets It's like saving dessert, exactly, Judah. That's exactly how I think of studying Torah. It's sweet sweets. All right, sweets. How often does leap year occur? I have no idea. <laughs> it's not every four years. <laughs> right, I have no idea. It... um. It rectifies the calendar, right? We're on a lunar calendar, but not totally. We're on a solar lunar mix. So if we don't rectify the lunar calendar, then we wind up with Pesach in the summer, right, which would be dumb. Hmm? Who makes the decision about what? It was set. It was set a long time ago. No, it's, it's, it comes off of the lunar calendar. So you have the lunar the lunar month is 28 between 28 and 29 days. So that translates into essentially 13 months, 13 lunar months a year, but not exactly. So over the course of like every like nine years, it happens three times or something like that. I mean, there's some there's some regular system to it. And I guess when the rabbis were canonizing this parsha goes for this day and things like that, they already knew all that stuff. They had already figured all that out. So there is some kind of it's an astronomy. Yes, it's it's astronomy. Yeah. And um. Actually, the, if you look at the, the rendering of the calendar, it's incredibly complicated. It's very, very complicated. And so, um, and there was arguments about it all the time, right? Until it was really set, there were arguments. And the biggest, the, the way you dug in the hardest for your calendar being the right one is that you ate on their Yom Kippur. <laughs> Right? Like a lot of us would go, okay, we're not real sure, so we're just going to fast on both of them. Right? But the rabbis, when they wanted to make sure, you know, you, that, that my opinion is correct, is they would eat on the Yom Kippur that the other calendar had designated. So it's like, you're ready to take a serious risk for your calculation. Right? Yeah. Let's begin then at Deuteronomy 31 1. 
Moses went and spoke these things to all Israel. He said to them, I am now 120 years old and I can no longer be active. I guess at 119. (laughs) Moreover, the Lord has said to me, you shall not go across yonder Jordan. The Lord your God himself will cross over before you and he himself will wipe out those nations from your path and you shall dispossess them. Joshua is the one who shall cross before you as the Lord has spoken. The Lord will do to them as he did to Sihon and Og, kings of the Amorites, and to their countries when he wiped them out. The Lord will deliver them up to you, and you shall deal with them in full accordance with the instruction that I have enjoined upon you. Be strong and resolute. Be not in fear or in dread of them. For the Lord your God himself marches with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Okay. Scientists, medical scientists, cellular scientists have found that human beings they've lived longer than 125 years. Well, they've. My understanding is that they capped. They capped it at 115. Mm-hmm. And right, it's like it. Yeah, so so it, this is sort of like, right. it seems that this is the fulfillment of the human lifespan potential. Mm-hmm. Right? To 120. I may have asked him. To 120. Right? So that's a... There's actually a note in the Red Book that says this comes from... It's also found in ancient Sumerian literature, the 120 years. So we, we tend to think of people dying young in the ancient world. But it's, it's not really true. People died young because... It isn't because they lived necessarily shorter lives. It's because their lives got cut off. War, famine, disease, right? All those things. But the, it seems the human lifespan was understood pretty much to be in the 80s was normal. If you didn't die from something that, you know, killed you young or in childbirth or, you know, or whatever, then 80s seemed to be pretty much like today the, the, the span that you'd live to with, with good living and good clean water and access to food and and, and a lot of luck, but you know, so it hasn't really changed. It just means more of us expect to reach that, right, than than ever before in human history, right? So what they do is they average how many people die at three, and how many die at 86, and when you average that out, you get to a number of people say, oh, they only lived to be 45 back then. That's like, mm, no, not exactly, right? A lot of people only made it to 45. Yes, that's absolutely true, but that. But if you made it past all the scary stuff, you know, you were likely to live till till, till your 80s. Let's say if you make it to 65, you're likely to live another 20 years. Wow. There you go. All right. You're likelier to live if you're a woman? If a male and a female who both make it to age 65, the female is still likelier to live six, seven years longer. All right. And at 100, you know what your actuarial life expectancy is? Four years. Wow. That's optimistic. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So insurance companies are optimistic on this count. That's good to know. (laughs) Right. If you make it to 100. Right. 
So Vayelech Moshe v'yedabert et ha'advarim ha'ele el kol Yisrael. So Moses went and spoke all these things to Israel. Already the rabbis understand this as midrash, or as an opportunity for midrash. So why does it say that Moshe goes and says all this to the people? How, how does Moshe usually speak to the people? How, what does that mean directly? They're in front of him. How are they there in front of him? God tells Moshe to speak to the people. How do the people get there? Well, but they're in their houses eating dinner. Now God says, tell the Israelite people. What? A shofar. So, somehow the people are summoned. It's time, a town meeting. It's time for a family conversation. right? So it's, it's time for y'all to come here because Moshe has something to say. This is different. What does this say? He went to the people. Moses went to the people. So the rabbis, there's a optimistic interpretation of this and a pessimistic interpretation of this. Tell me the pessimistic interpretation of this. They weren't coming anymore. They weren't coming anymore. <laughs> Why weren't they coming anymore? They'd heard it all. <laughs> They'd heard it all, right? They were tired of it. Um, they knew new leadership was coming. Moses was getting old. And he was the lame duck. The lame duck prophet, right? And so they weren't coming. He now had to go to them. All right, give me an optimistic interpretation by the rabbis of this. But y'all know how they think. He's getting even more humble. How, how does it show that he's getting even more humble? He's going, you know, humbling himself and going to the people and not having them. All right, so he's gotten even more humble. And now he's going to go take what he has to say to the people rather than calling them to him. Okay? Another optimistic interpretation? That he was so enthusiastic about what he had to say. <laughs> that he was so enthusiastic about what he had to say. He understands that he has a role here. Because what's about to happen <coughs> in this Parsha? Well, he's, he's not going to die yet. Hmm? He anoints Joshua. So he's got a job to do, and that is setting Joshua up for success. And so one optimistic interpretation by the rabbis is, so he goes door to door to sell people on Joshua. Let me tell you, I know he looks young. I know he does. But he's incredibly talented. He's a bright, bright guy. His heart's totally in the right place. Just give him a little time, right? He, and he's the guy to do like this next, fa- right? So he's going door to door, door to door profit salesman, to um, sell the people on Joshua, so that when he takes leadership, he's already got a good chunk of the people confident that he's going to be the right leader. Yeah, yeah, the hope and change kind of message. It is time for a change uh, because stuff's getting ready to change big time, right? Moses' job is not only over because he's old and tired. His job is over because he's he's done his job. They're about to cross over into the into the promised land. So and he knows he's not going. His job is done. And it's another job that has to happen. They don't need someone. Doing, you know, talking for God the way Moshe has, and and inter, in and intervening between God and them the same way that Moses has. They need someone who can conquer the Promised Land. Wasn't Moses told that he would not enter the Promised Land? He is told he's not going to enter the Promised Land, but that it 
He's told he can't enter the promised land, but the rabbis don't understand that as the reason this change is happening. The rabbis understand this change happening because Moses is not the guy for the job. He did his job. Even if he lived, even if they could carry him across, he needed to step down from leadership because they needed general. Right? Joshua has to be at the head of a military campaign to take the promised land. I mean, that's our mythology. Right? Is that we conquer the promised land. So the... Joshua, so you have to have somebody young and dynamic and strong, and he was a military thinker, right? Moshe may have been that a long time ago, but certainly not now. He's not the one to ride at the front of a military, very dangerous campaign. Mm-hmm. This is reminiscent to me of the Jacob and Esau story, where Jacob really had to become the leader of the Jewish people, so that we have to just forgive whatever happened, because he's being anointed one by God he's the leader so, so tell me how that parallels here what, what is the parallel here no, it's not a perfect parallel mm-hmm. but that, um, it's all for the group for the people not for about the individual it's what the Jewish people need so in certainly in Moses' case it's, it's no longer about him right? right as an individual he's not the guy to do the job it does seem the tradition understands that it is all about Joshua. That Joshua, but yes, it's not about Joshua. It's about, yes, always about the people, always about serving the people. Joshua's chosen. Notice, who doesn't succeed Moses? Yeah. Yeah. Or his sons. <clears throat> Aaron's got a job. And Aaron's job isn't over. He's got his own job. He can't do two jobs. He can't do his job and this job. He can't do the job of running the regular worship of the tabernacle. He can't do that and be the critic. You can't do both. Well, actually, that's what, that's what rabbis are asked to do these days is do both, which is why our jobs are sometimes crazy-making at best because you're asked to run the system and keep it going and keep people invested in it and you're asked to critique and change it and bring the people along and criticize where the people are for the good of moving them forward. How do you do both of those things, be the prophet and the priest? It's frankly, I think, impossible, but we do it anyway. So um, he, so Aaron's got a job. He can't be the priest and the prophet. So you need... You need someone else to do the other part of the job. And Joshua was chosen by God for that. That that there is something special about Joshua. There's something special about him that makes him the right choice to do this incredibly difficult job. Because it's not just military. Without Moses, that person's going to have to be able to also have the people feel like he's close with God and right, and that he can still do some of what Moses used to do around taking care of that relationship, right? Um, and so it seems that there's a there's something different about Yeshua that makes him God's choice, not Moses' sons. It's an, it's an interesting thing. So, because who's going to succeed Aaron? His son. Ah. That's so, so it doesn't seem that Torah has a problem with hereditary inheritance of a role, does it? Torah doesn't have a problem with that because Aaron's sons are going to take over for him. Who takes over for the king? His son. So Torah has no problem. Early Israel has no problem with the system being inherited by 
who you're born to. But, uh, <coughs> sort of the flip side, <coughs> excuse me, it's the flip side of have no problem with someone other than the, the, the first born being the one who takes the big job. It, we've seen that again. Right? We, we keep seeing the younger son Absolutely. take over, Absolutely. flipping the whole order. There. Big flip. Big flip. So Torah does not have a problem with children inheriting the role of their parent. So why not Moshe's sons? It insists, though, on the right person getting the job. Not always, because... When was the Let's check the book of Kings and check how many horrible kings there were in Israel and Judah. Often the son was not the right one to take the job. Last night I heard somebody say that uh, regarding modern politics that the president is not always the greatest event and life changer in the world. Think Martin Luther King and other figures that are very important. Maybe the king was not always the most important person in changing the direction either. The prophets and the leaders other than the kings may have been. So, So finish that thought. Thus, (laughs) right comes right out the right person gets chosen king or not whoever it is for the particular job so i think you're close you're close the i think that that it's because king and priest are one kind of role. For the role of this kind of charismatic leader, it cannot be hereditary because the sons may not have, the sons may not have it. it. It's going to be who has the charisma, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that in the good way. Who has the brains, the heart, the spirit, the look, the you know whatever that's going to get people lined up behind them because this is the hardest job. Right, that that this is the hardest job is getting the people moving <laughs> together and understanding that they live in a covenant that and to constantly remind them you live in relationship to something bigger than you. For the king, that would be the state. All right, fine. That's very different from what Moses and what Joshua's role is with the people. Right, the king kingship comes later, and it's very hesitant. The Torah is very hesitant by the way, about a kingship. The Torah knows it's going to go wrong. The Torah knows it's going to be bad. Right? So God says, fine. If you want to appoint a king, fine. But God is not pleased about it. Um, And then we get this long history of kings who mess up and princes who rebel against their fathers and cause civil war and all all the stuff you see in a monarchy. Uh, All of it's right there in, in early Israel. And it seems that you can't say to somebody, you can't say to a Martin Luther you can't take a Martin Luther King and assume his son is going to succeed him. He, he might, but nobody would assume that, right? You'd assume his protege, King's protege, would succeed him. Are, are the early kings of Israel always uh, through the line? They're, they were never appointed or, or became king by battle. They were sons of the, the kings or nephews. So, they were in the family. Except when they weren't right so <laughs> so right Saul is the first king David is not Saul's son Saul is the first king God chooses David to be the next king um, you know and some say this this whole thing is written with the 
intention of setting up David. That the whole Torah is actually written to set up David. Um, so now, next year, I want you to read the Torah <laughs> through that lens. Right? What if all of this is to set up David's monarchy? Right? So this is all commissioned, all so, and it's all pointing to David. So we get Jerusalem, we get Judah, we get like a lot of things lifted up because it's about David, setting up David. But anyway, I digress. Um, what were we saying? Uh, so, so David is not related to Saul, right? God chooses David to be the king after Saul. Then David's son Solomon be, follows him uh, as king, and it is under it's after Solomon that the, the monarchy is divided. So now, if you have a divided monarchy, everybody's going to fight for who's the real who's really entitled to the throne of Israel and the throne of Judah. And we get lots of fighting about that. So Joshua was the right man for this job. Joshua was the right man for this job. Linda, were you going to say something earlier about that? Um, no, other than the fact that um, Moses' sons really weren't standout. They were all kind of people don't even know their names. I don't think I believe them. Um, what are their names? <laughs> Gershon. Gershon. Gershon um, is one of them. So... But and what and what happened with Aaron's sons? Right. So not only did I mean, Aaron's sons didn't stand out as leadership material because they stood out in another way, and they got zapped. Right. They got dead. So right, you've got um, Eleazar and Itamar, his sons who get zapped. Right. So so it's clear that the son in in some of these cases are not. The best is Gershon and hmm? that's Joseph. Ephraim and Manasseh are Joseph's sons. Gershon and that we don't even remember their name. Thanks for that save. Right? Why is it gone? Oh, I'm 51. What, what are you going to do? I'm not 120, and already I'm like, I can't remember a name. <laughs> so, right? So Moses goes and speaks all these things to Israel. Good, we got, we got one sentence done in half an hour. I am 120 years old. I can no longer be active. So what's the Hebrew? I can no longer go out and come in. So I can't get around, right? In terms of being able to go out and come back in, you know, is a little bit more different than the English here, right? I mean, my sense is he's saying I can't take on major tasks of going out and leading the people and then bringing them back in, right? I can't, I, can't, I don't have the energy, the kayak to do that anymore. Does it say I can't? Yeah, lo uchal. So I cannot anymore. I'm not able anymore. Does that mean I'm not able? Yes. Or could it mean um, that God has made it that he's not able? It means I'm not able. 
you fit, fill in how, how you want that to read. Tying it to I'm now 120 seems to implicate, I mean, it seems to indicate that he's saying I'm now 120 years old, right? Um, it, I, I can't, I'm not able to, to do what I used to do. I mean, I know the Midrash. The Midrash wants to go on and say he never lost an ounce of vigor. His eyes remained clear till the very end. And this is Moshe being humble because he knows it's not his time anymore. Okay, that's, that's a wonderful Midrashic way to read it. it. The simple, the shot of the text seems to suggest I'm 120. I can't go, go in and out anymore the way I used to. Um, Eliezer of Moshe. Mm-hmm. Eliezer and Gershon. All right. Thank you. Did Siri tell you that? <laughs> right? Our favorite source, Siri. Um, and Adonai has told me that I'm not going to cross this Jordan. And so he, he tells the people now that he knows that he's not going to cross the Jordan. So what might he have said next? What might he have done next? I'm not going to cross the Jordan. I'm too old to go in and out anymore. And God's already told me I'm not crossing the Jordan. What might have he have done next? He could have said, so all of you guys have to stay here with me. (laughs) Okay. One interesting move might have been, so y'all need to stay here with me. I've devoted my life to you, and now it's your turn to take care of me. I've given my life to you, and it's your turn to take care of me. Darn it. Well, that is certainly one possibility. I don't know what it, what it would have said about Moses had that been his answer. I think that came from someplace really deep, Paula, uh, in you. Uh, right? It's, it's very Jewish, right? You know, I've given you everything. Right. What's that, what's that joke about how many Jewish mothers does it take to change a light bulb? None. I'll sit in the dark. Oh, you should have fun. Why should you worry about me? You'll enjoy. You'll go dancing. You'll stay out late. I'll sit alone in the dark at home by myself with nothing and nobody. It's fine. <laughs> To take care of one Jewish mother. Exactly. All right. So, barring asking them to stay and take care of him in his old age, what might Moshe have said next? Here's Joshua. Here's Joshua. I'm old. I can't go in and out anymore. I'm not going to cross the Jordan, but don't worry. You're okay because okay, Joshua is going to be the one to lead. But he doesn't say that. What does he say? He says, God will cross over before you. God's self will wipe out those nations from your path and dispossess them. Joshua is the one who shall cross before you as God has spoken. Moshe's job is always to remind the people that their primary relationship is with God. Actually, it doesn't say that God says that that God will dispossess the people. It says God will 
God will wipe out the nations from your path and you shall dispossess them. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, you know, you get all the plunder and anything that's left behind. Mm-hmm. God's going God's to nuke the people, but you dispossess them. Mm-hmm. So Moshe's job is always about trusting in God. That God will make it okay. God will take care of you. God will clear the path. God will be a bulldozer parent for you. You know, helicopter parents, they're not talking about bulldozer parents. Helicopter parents stay close and hover and watch everything and, you know, like wanna, whatever. And, um, bulldozer parents clear the path of any obstacles for their children, right? These are the parents that are going to job interviews with their children. <laughs> Mid-managers and corporations are being taught how to interview people and their parents that show up with them. I'm not even kidding you. How crazy, right? So bulldozer parents, so Moshe is saying God is a bulldozer parent. If you behave, if you behave, God will clear the path for you. God will wipe them out from before you. You don't have to do anything except plunder. And live there, right? And if you behave. And how often does Israel behave? Not often. Not often. There's a reason we read this between Moshe Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Right? This, this is our Shabbat Shuvah. This is our Shabbat of return, our Shabbat of turning. Because it's a little bit depressing that we see God soon saying, I know what's going to happen when they cross over. They're going to spurn me and go to other gods. They're going to worship other gods, and it's going to cause them to be kicked out of the very land that I have made it possible for them to inherit. There's a very sad God at looking at them crossing over. It's a very sad God, I, I think. Um, that God knows what's coming, and God goes to war for them anyway. right? God clears the path and makes it all happen for them anyway, knowing what they're going to choose, knowing that they're going to betray God. And God does it anyway. Why? Hmm. He's like the long-suffering mother. So God is the long-suffering mother. Tell me about that, Sarah. Well, you just demonstrated. (laughs) I don't know that that was exactly long-suffering. That was was suffering. (laughs) But God, God seems to love like a long-suffering parent, that it's not about what God's going to get back. God's going to do this anyway, knowing the kid is going to go off and betray the parent. This is such a departure from the God of wrath at the beginning, isn't it? it it's interesting. There's, on the one hand, it seems so that God's you know, a little sad, but also this is the same God who's going to punish them for going astray. It's not that God's not going to bring down serious consequences. It's not going to go well for them. They're going to get conquered. They're going to they're going to be in exile. They're going to be slaughtered. And God's going to unleash that because that's that's what happens when you break the covenant. There are things put in place that are going to happen if you don't observe, Robert. Well, this isn't as poetic, but he wants to see the next chapter in the book. That God wants to see the next chapter in the book, even though God knows what it is. Well, maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. But but here, yeah, but right here it says God knows what they're going to do. So so what is in it for God to watch that happen? To say I told you. The people have free will. It's not 
It's not predetermined. So you think maybe God has some hope? Of course. Okay, so God has a hope that maybe they won't. I know they're gonna, but maybe they won't. And it's also to say I told you so. And to say I told you so. And what's the reward in that for God? Being right? <laughs> I mean, is there satisfaction in being right, Sheldon? God has a long view. Here we are, 2,000 years later. Ah. So God has hope, but not... Not in the immediate, maybe, about what they're going to do, but God has hope because God has the long game in mind. God has the vision to know that 3,000 years later, we'd be sitting around the table, right? The people of Israel trying to figure out, okay, how, how do we do this? How do we do this covenant? What does it mean for us? We inherited this thing. We're trying. <laughs> like what, where's Joshua? Uh, where, where, where's Joshua? <laughs> exactly. Um, I think... There are, even though that in, in other in other faith traditions and other literary traditions, there is always this this story of a of a of a of a parent or an, an older person dealing with somebody younger, uh, like you know the prodigal son in the in the Christian Christian Gospels, where you have even though they're not all knowing, they have a they somehow have to accept the fact that their loved one has gone away or gone astray or something bad has happened. And but they're always willing to take them back. Uh, and you know, and all is all is forgiven. And, and which itself causes tension if they happen to have siblings who've sort of been doing the right thing. All along. Like, what? And but I think that there's of a lot of that in what's going on um, with God and the relationship with the people Israel in the sense that there's, yeah, I kind of know how people are going to ultimately behave, but, you know, maybe somebody will come back at some point. Maybe maybe somebody will realize they did something wrong and just... You know, because God is, we're throughout our, in the liturgy, we're, we're often reminded, you know, it just takes one step back, and, and God, God's going to smooth the way and make it back. So to Sheldon's point, to combine that with Richard's point, that, that God has the long view, which is why we read this at Shabbat Shuva, right? That, that God has the, not why, but I mean, it's, it's tied to, right, this whole season, that God has the long view that yes, this people's gonna mess up, and yes, they're gonna be dispossessed, and they can come back. They might do tshuva. They might shuv. They might turn. They might repent. And if so, God, we are promised over and over and over and over. We're promised in the Haftarah to this week's portion. Shuvu, like turn back, come back, because I will always take you back in love. I will always forgive you. I'm always looking to reactivate the covenant, always. And that that is both the promise and the challenge. Right? We live with the challenge of we can't say God abandon us. Yeah, you can say that. But but if we're promised God will always forgive us and always take us back in love, then who's the responsibility really on? Us. Us. It's very Jewish. That the responsibility is on us. God can't be anything but forgiving and merciful. 
That's who, that's what God is, is the force in this universe that makes for repentance. The force in the universe, according to Kaplanian theology, the power, capital P, that makes for transformation. The power that makes for liberation. The power that makes for healing. That's what God is. That's the definition. And if that's what it is, and it can't be anything other than that, then the responsibility for not accessing all of that would be on us. And certainly as reconstructionists, that is our theology, that God is the force that makes possible change, return, forgiveness, patience, grace. God, That's what God means. And since that's what it is, and it can't be anything other than that, if that isn't active in our lives, it's because we are not reaching and doing those things, those practices, those, those you know, te- following teachings about how to increase that in our lives. That is completely on us. I, I think just to, just to follow on, I think that particularly at this time of year when we're you know, sort of in the high holidays and we're sort of like ending one Torah cycle and we're about to study, start another Torah cycle, we, we tend to think of this circularity. Mm-hmm. But um, Judaism is kind of like an explicit repudiation of the simple singular mm-hmm. circularity mm-hmm. Of, of pagan world. So even though there's this kind of repetition, it's probably better in terms of the long view to think of it as rather than a circle, as a spiral where we're, we're just yes. like rising. We're, we're, we're sort of doing these circles, but over time, and this is God's hope perhaps, over time, the sort of average level of consciousness is increasing right. among people. Definitely. Something like that. Definitely. All right. So... He can, so Joshua's going to take you over and God, here, Moshe's giving them a pep talk, right? God's going to do what happened with Sihon and Og, king of the Amorites, right? And to their country. So calling on a recent experience of victory, a recent experience of success and reminding them just how that seemed unlikely and it happened. That's exactly what's going to happen when you cross over. God's going to do the same thing that God just did for you when you cross over. God will deliver them to you and you will deal with them uh, in full accordance with the instruction that I've joined upon you. And here we come to famous words. Be strong and of good courage. That's that's what's required from y'all. You know, to follow the teaching, to, to maintain the covenant. And in this case, to be strong and of good courage. Be not in fear or in dread of them, for God, God's self, marches before you, and God will not forsake you. Right? And God doesn't in this case. God doesn't forsake them. Seven, Bert. Then Moses called Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and resolute, for it is you who shall go with this people into the land that the Lord swore to their fathers to give them, and it is you who shall apportion it to them. And the Lord himself will go before you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Fear not and be not dismayed. All right, again, right? Not to give in to fear and dread. It's a pep talk. It is a totally a pep talk. Halftime. Go, nine. Moses wrote down the teaching, this teaching and gave it to the priests, sons of Levi, who carried the ark of the Lord's covenant and to all the elders of Israel. Go on. And Moses instructed them as follows. Every seventh year, the year set for remission at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God in the place that he will choose, you shall read this teaching aloud in the presence of all Israel. 
Gather the people, men, women, children, and the strangers in your communities, that they may hear and so learn to revere the Lord your God and to observe faithfully every word of this teaching. Their children, too, who have not had the experience, shall hear and learn to revere the Lord your God as long as they live in the land that you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. All right. So every seven years, not just adult male Israelites, those are the ones who have to make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem, are adult male Israelites. But every seven years, it's not just the adult males who will be expected to show up. Who's going to be expected to show up? Women, children. Everybody. Everybody. All y'all. Right? Strangers. Have to show up. And when that's gonna when is that gonna happen every seven years? Sukkot. Sukkot. Sukkot every seven years at that pilgrimage festival, it's not just the men, it is all of Israel who's supposed to show up to come before God and to hear the teaching read aloud. Yeah? Are y'all freezing? Yes. Now this is hot Torah that that they're hearing. Does that refer to the whole five books or just to part of right. Deuteronomy? So, what, what, what are they? It's at Torah Hazot. So if you read the entire book of Deuteronomy out loud, it takes about three to four hours. Right? If you read the book of Deuteronomy out loud and it takes three to four hours, how long is it going to take to read the entire Torah? Well, 15 hours. <laughs> 20 hours. Right? A long time. Right? So... Most likely, this is like every other case of where we've seen Hatorah Hazot, uh, which means part of Deuteronomy. Part, part of Deuteronomy. Most likely, yes. In, in this day and now, when we celebrate Sukkot, do we know, is this one of the seven? or? I don't know. I don't know that because we don't know that this ever happened. Okay. Right? We didn't. Right. It's not so something we no do. We, there's no record, right? So we, it might have happened, it might not have, but and so we have no idea where we are in that. It's not part of Jewish cycle. worship. No. I mean, we, no. we read Megillahs and we read. Because we read the Torah every week, right. right? Ezra and Nehemiah, when they came back from exile, they mandated that the people heard Torah Monday, Thursday, and Shabbos, right? Monday and Thursday. Market, market days because nothing has changed <laughs> the Jews don't come to the synagogue to hear Torah so you take it to the mall <laughs> you take it to where the Jews are you take Torah to the promenade because that's where they are they ain't, they ain't coming to you so you would on market days you would take it to a public space because it was a Jewish space obviously and um, you would read Torah publicly so that the people didn't go more than three days without hearing a public reminder of what was going on. So that completely undoes whatever the previous arrangement had been. There's a rabbi in New Jersey as a congregation, and he goes to the mall once a week. It's teaching with a rabbi, and he always talks about it in his letters that he sends out about the conversations he has with people. Right? So there's some people who say, that's what we should be doing. Why aren't we going to where the people are? Why are we telling the people they need to come here? Why aren't we taking Torah to the people? Chabad right? goes to the mall in Santa Monica. Chabad goes to the mall in Santa Monica. There you go. That's sort of what Moses, Moses did too. He went to the people. Well, maybe that's what I'll start doing. I'll just go start hanging out at the mall. You know, this, this I'm, say, I'm bringing Torah to the people. That's, that's what I'm doing here. Neiman, Neiman Marcus, that's where the Jews shop. That's why I'm here on a Wednesday, Thursday afternoon. Right? It's because that's where the Jews are. What do you want from me? This says Moses wrote down the teaching. 
That must have taken a bit of time. Again, if it was the whole book of Deuteronomy. If it's a part of Deuteronomy. Yeah, part of Deuteronomy. Mm-hmm. Well, was I misreading a part of this, which seems to say, to the contrary, uh, everybody's got to come to Jerusalem. It says the place mm-hmm. that will be chosen. But this mm-hmm. sounds like uh, the ruling that you all have to go to Jerusalem at least every seven years for mm-hmm. this. Yes. 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 Yeah. Right. That's what we just said. That the adult males go all every Sukkot. But every seven years, all y'all come. Kulchem, like everybody. The the same one? Everybody goes the same Mm -hmm. Yes. The entire people are to assemble. I mean, in Jerusalem, by the way. Right. So, I mean, personally, I think it was a vision. It was a hope. I I can't imagine, right, this. The traffic. The traffic, right? It's awesome. Exactly. Like the PCH. It's very inclusive. Although maybe some people would say there's, there was a mechitza there, but nevertheless, it, it, it's very non-sexist and democratic, and as we saw last week in the other instruction to gather everybody. Mm-hmm. Right. That this is. So what's the orthodox take on this? They don't have a problem. There's nothing that collides for them. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's no Where contradiction. Put them on the other side. By the side of course, of the there had to be a machitza. Of right. course, okay. that they're coming to. Everybody's going to be there, but of course, there has to be a machitza. The women would sit on one side, and the men on the other. Of course. No. The wall was not a synagogue. Right. No. So that was a bit tongue in cheek. Because he's saying, well, what do the Orthodox do with this? I'm like, where's the problem? He said, well, if they're all together, right, so in tongue in cheek, it's like, well, of course there was a mechitza. It's like, don't you know the rabbinic, and, and this is in all seriousness, the rabbis say, how do we know that, that our forefather Yaakov wore a strimal? <laughs> how do we know that? Where do we find that in Torah? This is serious. And they say, well, look at the verse. It says, and he left and went out of his house. <laughs> Yaakov would leave his house without a strimal? <laughs> It's circular reasoning, right? That, right? So, you know, well, what's the problem? Of course, there would have been a machitza, right? So the Orthodox read everything according back into according to their reality and read it back here, into here. They had generations to come up with all this, right? Right? But exactly. This, this was also interfaith. No. No, it was not interfaith. No, no. Careful, careful, careful. Let's be very clear. The stranger is observing the covenant. Right? God forbid. Right? The stranger is going to do Shabbos, is going to do Sukkot, is going to do right all those things. There. Think about it. There wasn't that much to do as an Israelite Mm -hmm. to keep the covenant. There was. There wasn't what we have today. Right? And when you think of. Halacha, you think of Jewish law. There, there wasn't that. Right? It was. You kept Shabbos. You kept the festivals. You didn't worship other gods. You know, you. There, there was, there wasn't that much. To, to the stra- In other words, a stranger wouldn't have had that much trouble practicing Israelite cult religion, right? The cult wouldn't have demanded a lot from a stranger. It wasn't demanded of an Israelite. There wasn't a big crossover, right? Um, so, it, it, so everyone's practicing the rules and the laws of the covenant together. They just don't have to be Israelite. They don't have to be Israelite to do that. All right. Um, 
14. The Lord said to Moses, the time is drawing near for you to die. Call Joshua and present yourselves in the tent of meeting that I may instruct him. Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tent of meeting. The Lord appeared in the tent in a pillar of cloud, the pillar of cloud having come to rest at the entrance of the tent. Go on. The Lord said to Moses, you are soon to lie with your fathers. This people will thereupon go astray after alien gods in their midst in the land that they are about to enter. They will forsake me and break my covenant that I made with them. Then my anger will flare up against them and I will abandon them and hide my countenance from them. They shall be ready prey and many evils and troubles shall befall. See Elena, there you go. And they shall say on that day, surely it is because our God is not in our midst that these evils have befallen us. Yet I will keep my countenance hidden on that day because of all the evil they have done in turning to other gods. Therefore, write down this poem and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths in order that this poem may be my witness against the people of Israel. When I bring them into the land flowing with milk and honey that I promised on oath to their fathers, and they eat their fill and grow fat and turn to other gods and serve them, spurning me and breaking my covenant, and the many evils and troubles befall them, then this poem shall confront them as a witness, since it will never be lost from the mouth of their offspring. For I know what plans they are devising even now before I bring them into the land that I promised on oath. That day, Moses wrote down this poem and taught it to the Israelites. This is the wistful God who's already upset and angry that God knows what they're doing even now. Even now before they go, their plan right there, you know, even now. And I mean, it's a pained God that has to bring punishment on a people because they chose to worship other stuff. This truly, obviously, is not our theology. I think the language of this still speaks to me deeply about God has given us, however we want to, you know, just for a second personify God and say who gave us, right? But the forces that make for this amazing planet, the the forces that had to come together to have life happen on this planet gave us the land flowing with milk and honey gave us the gift of being consciousness incarnate. And what do we do with it? What have we done? If we take this and use our theology, I can use my theology and lay it right over this. And it matches up pretty close. We were given a gift by the holy forces that we'll call existence, capital E, being, capital B. This incredibly precious gift of this planet and life on this planet. Life. There are billions of galaxies. Maybe there's life other places. We don't know. But we know that it's an incredible miracle that there is life here. And I can picture God, whatever that is, right? Going, what are they doing? Why do they worship other things as as most powerful? Right? He gave us free will, that was the mistake, say some. Some of the rabbis say that's the mistake. With all due respect, it's, though, to modern theology, the human terms that this speaks in, I think, is what has made this live for so long. And I, I'm just talking personally. You mean the personification of the God? The personification of God, that, 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 that it talks in the kinds of terms that we human beings can mm-hmm. understand. We're human. 
And when we put this in words, we can only put it in human words. We don't have any other words. We don't have, you know, we're, we, we don't see other things. And for me, this is, as you were saying, I think this is very, very powerful. And I personally, it's just, I'm just personally, I don't think we need to try and lay other theologies on top of this or whatever, but more to listen to the words and let them speak to us because I think they speak in a powerful human way about our, like you're saying, about our relationship to the earth, about our relationship to God, whatever that means. And we don't have to say, yeah, but. We can just kind of absorb it. I think we can just absorb it without believing it, or as uh, I think it was Rabbi Rubin said, you know, we can take the Torah seriously without taking it literally. But that does require me to say, yeah, but. Right, so it does. To Elena's point, I, I I can't I can't just let this sink in that God's going to punish us. I can't I can't. That doesn't. So for you, I get it. That sinks in and it can just speak in its own ways. For me, I have to lay something over this that says, read through a reconstructionist lens. I can I can read these words and translate them in a way that harmonizes completely with my theology. That I don't believe God's going to punish us. Mm-hmm. I, that's right. That's not my theology. So that part, I mean, I have to read something over that part. What I read over that is we're going to take care of that. Mm-hmm. We're, right, we are causing the same forces that created life on this planet to destroy life on this planet. So yes, the forces that, that gave us life are also going to destroy it because we are unleashing them in ways that we now see hurricanes right, of incredible magnitude because we have changed the climate of the planet. We are causing tsunamis. We are causing life to be wiped out by the forces of nature that have always been here. For the first time, our worship of other gods, power, money, prestige, success, control, oil, like our worship of other gods for the first time is changing the entire ecosystem and turning it against life on this planet. Our own refusal to deal with overpopulation of the planet, right? We are overrunning the planet. We are so successful, we might kill this place because there's too many of us consuming way too much. Well, a very tiny proportion of us is consuming way too much, right? And it's a very powerful set of images for me about what we are unleashing and what that's going to mean, right? It does already mean exile, For a whole bunch of people. Towns in Haiti were just flattened by Matthew. Flattened. They don't have anywhere to go. They don't have other homes. I saw this documentary on Pakistan and the flooding in Pakistan and what it did there. And where are they going to go? They're living in the mud with no house, with no roof. Like This is, for other people, this exile has come to be just this past weekend. Or no, this week, whatever it is. It's the holidays. I don't know what the heck day it is. So, right? But they've known to being dispossessed from their land because we worship oil, because we worship more, because we worship new. My daughter says to me, "Yeah, I need a new phone. <laughs> I, you know, I need the iPhone 7." <laughs> and I almost ran the car off the road. 
right? You first of all, let's look at that word need. Let's talk about that word need. You need a new phone. You need right. So that was a lecture um, that she's heard once or twice. Um, she has an iPhone, probably six, whatever. At Lisa's feeling, Rahman is from my child. She's heard a few of these uh, in Israel when we travel together, and you know you see all sides of a person when you travel together. So. Um, <laughs> But she, you know, like, what, that's where we're at. I need. I need the newest one. I need a better one. I, I, forget want, right? Where's, like, want is, where's that word, right? I, I need, and that, and this is what's driving. Our, our, our wants have become needs in our own perception, and then we do whatever it takes and, and screw the consequences about what that's, going to mean and that's exactly what's being said here you know what the consequences are going to be it's been explained to you it's been laid out for you and god knows we're going to choose it anyway and then we're going to say and i say this with all humility truly it's going to sound cheeky but i don't mean it that way what's with cancer what's what's with so much cancer well i'll tell you what's with cancer we're sitting on Every woman in this country has a scotch guard in her breast milk. Mm-hmm. Every single woman. So what is that? Wait, even if your couch isn't scotch guarded, the one in the doctor's office is. We're sitting on chemicals. We're we breathing jet fuel. right? And, and we wonder what's up with the cells in our bodies going crazy. Like, it's like right? you know what's going to happen and you do, you do it anyway. And right, certainly I have this is wonderful poem by... Rabbi Maggie Wenig, that God is an old woman sitting at the kitchen table waiting for us to return, waiting for us to come home, sitting alone. Kids are in the dark. Ha'azinu, the next Torah portion, is the poem. Three pages like Is that the same poem? Or yeah. Because, oh, yeah. Um, because I thought on... Because um, there's two, two instances of reciting this poem, I thought. She said... Uh, Oh, uh, yeah, so This is the poem that's going to witness against the people. Give ear, O heavens, let me speak, right? Right. That day, Moses wrote down this poem and taught it to the Israelites. Mm-hmm. Right? And then it goes on about another eight verses or so. Mm-hmm. 30, says, then Moses recited the words of this poem. So, is that, it's the same poem. Presumably, yeah. yes. He teaches it to them. And now, meaning you're going to recite this. You need to keep reciting this. So, so that... It reminds you that the heavens and earth are being brought as witnesses mm-hmm. to this agreement that you're going to break. So it's even worse. You're going to be reciting the words all the time that tell you if you screw this up, it's going to be super bad for you. We're going to be reciting that all the time and, and do it anyway. Which is not so different, right, from what we do now. right? We say the Shema, we say the Vyahavta all the time. Does it change our behavior? Yom Kippur says, no, it doesn't usually, even though it should, and even though the gates of Teshuvah are always open. So this one time, this one day, let's see if we can't make that actually happen. One day. Let's see if we can't actually allow all of this to sink in. So no eating, no drinking, no sex, no anointing, no luxurious leather, 
put the iPhones down, right? That's taking off your leather shoes in the ancient world. Your luxuries get put away. And even those things that you think of as we need, like food, not today. All of it goes away. Making love, all the things that are pleasurable about being alive, that distract us from right the work, which is usually fine and, and sometimes a, and is a wonderful thing. Not today. All of it goes away. But we still have to drive our cars to get to Westwood. So that is a compromise that liberal Jews are willing to make, to say, for the greater good, for the greater good I'm going to drive my car, right? Some people say, I'm not going to go to shul because I'm not driving my car. It's not Reconstructionist. Reconstruction say in the in the competition of values, and there are often values that clash, in the competition of values, where do we prioritize? Getting in the car to go to shul is right up there. Right? You don't get in the you know on Yom Kippur, God forbid, get in the car to go to the mall. But you to come to shul hundred percent. Hundred percent. And the lights are on. So that we could all read, right? And be together on the page and, and do tshuva and do the words that lead us, right? Hopefully to a place of getting it that we, we are promised to be taken back in love. And that is our end of the obligation. That's our end of the deal. All right. Lynn, I promised I would hold a moment for you to ask a question about Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. Two questions. One is for all services. So we'll go to the question about right versus left first. For the rabbis, right is good, left is bad. Right, right is the sign of the good stuff. Left is evil. Right, whatever. So it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Think black, white, negative, positive, good, evil. It used to punish children who were left-handed. Right. It was different. It was. It was. It was aberrant. So of course the hand that's not usually dominant that's and it's aberrant. If it is, becomes the the negative side. Doesn't matter. So think Kabbalah. Think bigger than good and bad, right? Kabbalistically, it's the right. The rabbis say you want to put your right foot in your trousers in the morning first, right? So they were very, very into the what forces we align with, and when we when we lead with the right. And your first step in the morning should be taken on your right foot, right? So that you're aligning yourself with the forces of good. So that's why the right hand. Whatevs. So and the so um, covering our eyes is because what are we asked to do in the moment of Shema? Here. Concentrate. Concentrate. Listen. Listen. Right? Listen. So the eyes are an extension of the brain, right? They are actually attached to the brain, and so when we see, our brains are immediately involved in whatever's going on. It's not separate. It's not like there's sight and then your brain. Like eyes and brain are one. So the brain is activated in all kinds of ways when we have our eyes open, when there's visual stimulation coming in. So the idea is to cut off visual stimulation so that we are better able to concentrate, to focus, but not here, right? Not focus the way we think of it with the eyes, to focus by listening. Because that's what Shema is telling us to do, listen. So the rabbis take it very literally. How do I listen best? Often when I close my eyes, right? And I can really focus on those words and I can really listen. Um, yes? And then I was wondering, the, on uh, Rosh Hashanah Day, the Unatana Token prayer, when you read it, it's very awesome and powerful and all these 
it, it's quite heavy. But the tune that we sing <laughs> is yeah, and then kind of we're swaying and tapping our feet. It, it doesn't line up. So, a couple things. So one is. Unatana Tokif, we're not swaying. That's the one where there's all those solos in the choir. Mm-hmm. So, the big sound of the shofar. And the tiny little voice will be heard, right? That, that's that text. It's very awesome. It's very majestic, you know, with all these lovely things that Cantor Uri Frankel did, right, to lift up different pieces, that, right? So, um, Avinu Malkenu is different. Right, so Avina Malkenu has this Hasidic, right? Yam pam 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 pam. Avinu That's the one that drives me crazy. Mm-hmm. I'll be completely honest; it drives me crazy. I have never sung it like that in my life. It has been something that that the the Chazan and I was led by were weeping at this point, and we're really, really fetching. Those words about we ain't shane banu masim. We have nothing. We have no deeds to recommend us, but deal with us anyway in mercy and in loving kindness. We don't deserve it, right? That we are pouring our hearts out at that point. It, it is a complete disconnect for me. In, in my childhood, we sang that same song with the same tune, but half the speed. So it became a mournful. Um, yeah. 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 And it worked. It's it's unbelievably powerful. My congregation in Duluth, like they wanted us to add two or three more rounds, and then we did one like where we just did um, the melody without words, right, as a nigun, like because they just weren't finished. They weren't. They they had such a hard time letting go because it was so powerful that it was. They wanted more. So it's a question. (laughs) Okay, when the new president says, that's an interesting question. Different question. Different question. Don't talk about that on Shabbat (laughs) Shuvah. There, there are other forces forces at work. So, um, so right. Should I find the ability and capacity to lean into the charisma of uh, of our? former leaders, perhaps I can influence. I think the challenge here really is how do we make the high holidays not just rote? How do we really get into what the spirit is of what this day is about? And it's very difficult and demanding. And some people like to do it and some people prefer to go through the motions. Oh, I'm not go, go to this handout because Bert's just created a bridge. And go to the bottom paragraph. That I'm going to let you take this home and read it. Um, yes. Taking, uh, this is Rabbi Philip Grobart who says that there are two kinds of prayer. And he's talking about, and he explains each type of prayer. But drop down to the bottom paragraph, his chiddush, his his point. For many years now, possibly for my whole career, I've sensed that most Jews don't get everything they should out of prayer. Of course, there are issues with language, melodies, translations, and a crowded, sometimes noisy room doesn't always lend itself to true self-reflection. Like most serious spiritual endeavors, Jewish prayer requires practice and education. 
probably the first step, though, is deciding the goal. What am I trying to achieve in those rare quiet moments when I'm actually lost in the experience, in the chanting, in the words, the memories, in the buzzing quiet? We have a few more days this holiday season to ponder these questions and perhaps act on them. But what is, so what is the point when, when we go to shul, right? What's, what's the point of it for us, of, of prayer? I think there's lots of reasons we go to shul that have nothing to do with prayer. Thank God, or nobody would come. Um, but I think the question for us is, as we go to services, what is the point for us? What are, what, are we, what are we looking for? And then to really try to have that happen, to really try to make that happen for ourselves in services. Because sometimes it's the service, but sometimes it's about, oh, I don't like this, I don't like that. Right? You know, that we, we get into judgy head and judging mind, and then it's easy for us to say, so therefore I don't have to what? You know, like I... I don't have to go. I don't have to participate. I don't have to like it. I don't have to be moved. I don't have because I don't like this and I don't like that and I don't like this. And that's not how I do it. I mean, the, the challenge is where can we show up and lean in and create an experience for ourselves? What, what are we even looking for right in that experience? And can we find ways to really grab those moments and and milk them for for all we can get from them spiritually in shul? And we have to do that. It's the same, not just with services, but with life. We choose to make a good day. We don't just have it happen. Because there's lots we we are in control of, right? When it comes to ourselves and reactions are all our control. Exactly. And so I've given you on the other side, Rabbi Rami Shapiro, um, his uh, interpretation of this week's parsha. and look at Remez, literary reading. Why does Torah say go out and in rather than in and out, the more common usage? Is it necessary to go out before we come in? But then is that different than needing to be in before we can go out? Does in imply out and out imply in? And if so, is there anything such as really in or really out in and of themselves? Or is each a relative of the other? What might this be saying about life and its supposed opposites, right? Rami's always so good about pushing the, the edge, always pushing the edge that, you know, we, we so, we're so binary. We're so, this is good, that's bad. I like this one, I don't like that one, right? This is about judgy mind, right? So, you know, we're doing it all the time. And so therefore I either want to come closer to something or push it away. You know, and he's, and he's asking us to really challenge ourselves and say, right, do we have to go to that binary place if it's good or it's bad? Or I like it or I don't like it? Right? Is there a way to just kind of get past that and just allow an experience to to be both and all of it and let those inform each other and right and and carry us to a deeper place where ultimately we get to the sense down it's sowed. In this portion, Moshe embraces all opposites in a greater unity. You know, can we can we get to the sowed? Can we get to that secret mystical level of it's all it's all a unity and we move within that right not that we don't move but we but we move within a unity and i think for us we move as the unity of a people of a history of a unique perspective in the world the jewish perspective and and we're lot there's lots of differences in that and it's still all one and that that's an incredible blessing and a real challenge, you know, for us to to embrace at the high holidays. But it's our it's our amazing 
opportunity and a real gift when we can manage to do that. May we find ways each of us into the services, into the process of tshuva, into the process of reflection and change in such a way that we really do come to this new year uh, with a new sense of the possibility of doing it differently. Amen. Shabbat shalom and shana tova. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.